saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss, but I'm going to have a real issue if you aim low and hit. That you get nothing for coming in last. And by the way, you can't just have it because you want it. He said, when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. Welcome to another episode of Lucrative Lessons. Got your boy Kyle Barger from Columbus, Ohio. What's up, guys? This is Trey Spiller, special guest from Vail, Colorado today with uh, Nick Swanson here. Hi, everybody. Nick Swanson from Chicago. From Chicago, our main man. Min Lee from Philadelphia. Min Lee from the East Coast. And we've got a special guest today. Uh, Trey, give us an introduction here. Yeah, guys, we got a special guest on Paul. Uh, from filter.ai and uh, I'll let you make an introduction here. Hey, I'm uh, I'm Paul Villeneuve from filter.ai, CEO and co-founder. Awesome. So Paul, tell us a little bit about filtered AI, what what kind of a a company it is and and what's kind of the elevator pitch here? So filtered uh, is in uh, HR tech space and basically what we do is we help companies to identify, assess, and hire uh, technical talent with, through a combination of video interviewing, coding challenges, and predictive analytics. Fantastic. And, and Paul, where, where do you live uh, presently? Oh, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Yes. In Boston. Awesome. So we're covering uh, all over the country, Boston, Philly, Chicago, uh, the mountains of Vail, and little old Columbus, Ohio. So Paul, how did you, uh, how did you get into this space? Wow. Um, so, uh, I guess I've, I've been working on, I've been an entrepreneur, I guess now for around 10 years. So this awesome. was, uh, I got into this area because we built it, uh, internally to support our consulting business. Fantastic. So were you working for somebody else before you started the entrepreneurship role? Like how did you get the bug where you said, you know what, like I want to go off my own and forge my own path. Ah, so that goes back to, so I played basketball in college, and I played basketball after college uh, for a few years. So um, what I knew, I didn't want to work behind a desk, and I didn't want to work for, for somebody else. I basically was unemployable. Um, <laughs> but uh, I came back from playing basketball in China and in 2004. I, need, I needed uh, knee surgery, and a friend was working as a, as a technical recruiter, and I took a job as a, as a recruiter. Uh, and I worked there for about two years and, and, uh, started my own thing and never kind of went back. Awesome. So you're, you're playing ball in China, uh, knee injury. So did you get that job working, uh, from China? Were you working remotely there? No, no, I came back, uh, from China. Um, you get cut pretty quickly, uh, when you're injured. So, uh, I was sent back and, and then I needed knee surgery and I didn't have health insurance. And so, um, you know, Hey, let's, let's take some sort of steady job. So to speak. Yeah. Awesome. So, so about how old are you when you're, you're leaving from China, you're coming back to the States and you're starting to work in the tech space. 29, 29. Yeah. Awesome. And then, so how long did you work for this company? What, what's kind of the timeline in the transition where you went from working for somebody else and saying, Hey, I, I want to forge my own path here. So from April of 2004 till September of 2006. Awesome. And, um, yeah, so that was, it was, uh, you know, a couple of years, good, good, got good experience uh, from a growing 
company. I got to, ex- to see what it, what it feels like to scale going from around 10 million in revenue to 150 million in run rate revenue um, in a few years. So Awesome. So uh, you're with a company that's booming. They're, they seem to be growing at a, a rapid exponential pace. Usually that's very attractive to somebody who's an employee because you're along for the ride. You're, you're growing as they're growing. So for most people, that, that seems like a pretty, uh, pretty secure career path. So I guess what was the turning point for you where you said, hey, I'm, I'm on this rocket ship anyway, but I'd rather be the pilot of my own? Yeah, I just uh, I felt like I was I was operating on my own uh, in terms of it, it was a very entrepreneurial environment, and I felt like I was bringing a lot to the table, uh, but I was also having to deliver on my own and and recruit my own resources, and and so I felt uh, I felt like I could do this totally on my own uh, instead of uh, instead of splitting ninety percent of well only taking ten percent of what I'm bringing in, and then also not not having, um, you know, decision-making ability at, at the, you know, I guess at the, at the C level, so to speak, or the upper level in terms of the, the path of what the company is doing. It, I could, I could actually only just guide my own, uh, my own path. Like I was responsible for myself. So. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So I, you know, I think that's a common, uh, thought process for a lot of folks, right? They are working for somebody else. They see the successes, they see the dollars being generated and they think, man, you know, I, I feel like I'm putting points on the board. Um, but I, I seem to be getting a very small piece of this pie. How can I, uh, go do that myself? Now for me, when I took that first step, I learned a lot of hard lessons where it's not as easy as, as you think going off on your own, the dollars aren't as cut and dry. So, you know, if you made $2 million for another company, you go do that on your own and you realize how much overhead and costs and expenses are in there. So what were maybe some of those lessons as you, you know, you decided to change careers, you go off on your own and and the dollars and cents don't seem to be as maybe, uh, easy as once thought or or were they easy? What what was that transition like? Yeah, definitely not easy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess the, the first first thing we took for granted was um, finding office space, <laughs> and then uh, the first big mistake—it wasn't really a big mistake, but it didn't set us back on on projections. But uh, moving into an office space in downtown Boston, taking about two months just to schedule Verizon to show up to give us internet, and uh, <laughs> they show up two months later and and hey, this is a Comcast building, and uh, so uh, we didn't get it. Actually, we're paying rent for four months into an office space that we couldn't even move into. So little things like that, those hiccups that you take for granted, um, because you know when you show up and somebody else runs everything, it, it's uh, it's a lot easier to kind of pick it up. But good experience nonetheless. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a running joke at our office that uh, obviously with small startups, you know, one day you feel like you're wearing the HR director hat, the next day you're the sales director, you know, ten minutes later you're the IT guy, and then eventually you're the janitor. So you know, when, when you work for somebody else, I guess it's easy to take for granted just how many other people are doing different support roles, different jobs that make it easy for you to just focus on your one task. But you know, you go off on your own, and you're now the entire crew and captain of that ship yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for a while. <laughs> awesome. So cool. So walk us through. So you, you move back, you, you get office space in downtown Boston. Obviously, you're paying some probably pretty pricey rent before you can get rocking and rolling. But, you know, how, how did business uh, start off? Who were some of your first hires? What were some of the lessons along the way to get where you're at now? So my first hire was a, a, a good friend, uh, my best friend at the time. And, and uh, he, was sale, he was in sales. And so I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a frontline sales guy. And I think uh, being an entrepreneur, 
one of the, the one of the first things you have to do is to understand your strengths and weaknesses, and build and build teams around that. And uh, and 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 it's an exercise where you have to really be honest with yourself. And um, you know, so that was my first hire, and basically I was dealing with most of the the project work in terms of you know the the engineering pre sales, which really is kind of just you know showing up to meetings with a sales guy, and I'm. Um, and then recruiting or doing design of uh, of projects, et cetera. But um, we didn't hire. We used consultants for the first year. We didn't bring on anybody full time. We just hired, uh, you know, consultants as as needed. So just we yeah. kept rates really low. And was that mostly because you didn't have, say, forty hours of work for those full time hires? It was just a little bit of stuff here and there uh, as you were growing. No, no, it was, we had 40 hours plus a week, but, um, what I was afraid of is lining up project work after that Yeah, and, and the bench time, you know, so sure. you hire somebody full-time salary and they work on a three month project and that ends and you're paying every hour until they're out again. So, sure. Yeah. So I, I think you raised a really interesting point, uh, when you started talking that, um, as you go off on your own, being able to identify, not only your strengths, but your weaknesses to hire people on your team to fill those gaps. And I think that's a, a blind spot for a lot of entrepreneurs because first off, when you start a business, that's your baby, right? It's hard to hand the steering wheel to anybody else for any task. But when you realize that there's a lot of talented people out there that you know will buy into your mission and can maybe f- cover some of those blind spots, fill some of those cracks, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful thing once you get some good people on the bus and see that thing rocking and rolling. Yeah, yeah, so, no, yeah, really good insight there. Um, okay, so in Boston, business is starting up. So, so talk about some of your first clients. It sounds like you already had some big projects uh, right out of the gate. Well, yeah, I mean, had to not compete. So, um, and that was a, that was another lesson learned. Um, yeah, so we uh, we got sued in, uh, and it basically was setting an example for other people in the office that if you leave, you'll get sued. And so yeah. it was more of a business strategy than it was anything. And, and, uh, yeah. unfortunate thing around that is, is you, even though they lost, they still went through discovery and, and, uh, ended up paying $120,000 in, in lawyer fees. But I got a really good lesson in, in that, uh, in the process, you know, of that. Yeah, um, so, hey, Paul, I was going to add, now, did you guys have business insurance before that to protect, uh, or mitigate against any kind of potential lawsuits like that? No, I mean, we were really fine by the seat of the pants. Uh, so, no, we didn't have anything. Right, yeah. And we uh, we just went through a really good lesson with our actual business partner between Nick and myself. Uh, we picked up um, with some of our new startups. It's so like always starting off with just umbrella coverage to cover for any kind of uh, named lawsuits. Whether you win or lose it, you still have to protect yourself, right? So right. that's one of those things that I recommend to any entrepreneur getting started off with. Just have that quick discussion with an insurance broker and say, this is what we're doing. We just want to be protected just in case we're named in a lawsuit. Whether you're going to win it or lose it, right? Uh, You just need to have that protection because they will run you through the ringer uh, and they'll try to get every dime out of you before – before they, uh, you know, try the case. Right. So let's so let, spending a lot of money just to go through that process. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. So I had a similar situation. I came from a company that was kind of a juggernaut in their space yeah. and it was common for them to want to make an example out of anyone who left. 
they would essentially enforce your non-compete, even knowing they're going to lose the case because it's going to tie you up in court. It's going to cost you a ton in legal fees, which to them pales in comparison to somebody starting off on their own and just the stress and animosity that comes with it. So, you know, going through that process, Paul, like I know there's probably some things you can and can't talk about, but like, I guess, is there a lesson on maybe how you would tread water if you, if you had to do that again, or for an entrepreneur thinking about leaving a current company to still compete in that space, what advice would you give them? I would just, uh, I guess, just it's tough. I mean, because you can't control somebody from suing you, um, and even if you don't violate, it's 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 kind of one of those those things where your your livelihood's being threatened, and and it's very personal uh, yeah. situation. Even though the the CEO of the company said when I saw him a year after uh, out, uh, he said that you know hey, it's business and it's not personal. But if you're an entrepreneur and you own the company, it's it's there's no separation. <laughs> right. Um, so. I, I would just say to, to kind of, you know, to make sure that you have a good attorney to talk to beforehand and even draft something. Be proactive. Don't say, I don't have something else or I'm going to do something on my own. Sure. Um, really draft something together and say, here, I'm going to stay away from all of these customers so that everything's outlined and, and you're showing good faith um, versus, you know, did kind of disacquitting and disappearing. Um, sure. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know if it ever crossed your mind. I mean, it sounds like you were part of a good company, but you were very committed to staying in that space. I know for some people, a lot of times they have that experience and they're scared of that non-competer. They're scared of maybe how that former company can, can affect their livelihood and their business. So that steers them to go in a completely different route. And, you know, my advice would be, I, I almost did the same thing. I worked in, in steel for 10 years and I was planning on becoming an entrepreneur, but in a totally different industry. And somebody told me, Kyle, why would you waste 10 years of experience to go be a rookie at something else? Like, sure, you can, you can figure it out, but that's 10 quality years. So, you know, just like you said, don't let a company or a lawsuit or that non-compete necessarily scare you from pursuing your experience and your path. But there might be a quick, cheap conversation with a lawyer to at least help you protect, you know, how forging that path forward can be a lot smoother, a lot safer, and a lot more cost friendly, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But if, you know, the other side of that is is they win if you if you decide to go to to a, you know another industry or something just because you're afraid of a lawsuit. Yep. You know, they end up winning. So. Um, Absolutely right. Cool. So, so moving on from that, so obviously you had some trials and tribulations early on, uh, but let's, let's talk about maybe some of the other uh, lessons that you learned or maybe some of the successes where you start to see the company take off. Maybe you had some of those uh, checks along the way where maybe you asked yourself, man, am I doing the right thing? Should I even be doing this? Like this is costing me a lot of money and a lot of stress, but you know, continuing to forge through and, and let's hear about some of the successes or lessons beyond that. Yeah, I think uh, we, we were lucky. Uh, the timing was good. Uh, 2006. Uh, we were in, you know, technology services. So um, we might have been a buildings uh, product for a startup or you know a large company. And um, we, in the first three years, uh, by actually by around June of 2009, we, we were up to about a 25 million dollar uh, run rate. And revenue, we had five full-time employees, so you know things were, were going really well. The problem with services that I didn't that I didn't like, uh, as I began to evolve, is that um, I just wanted to, to actually 
one, you know, I, I, it was it was labor arbitrage in some areas. You know, there was no relationship building with customers. Uh, I found that you know if somebody offered something cheaper, they would go to them. Yeah. Um, and then I just felt like um, I wanted to build something that I stuck around for too, and kind of saw it through. Versus, you know, here you go. Um, and uh, and even though we took pride in our work and we and we delivered, but I just. You know, I wanted to, to, to you know, I, I, I basically I had the feeling like I've been there, done that. I know that I want to move over to, you know, building products uh, yeah. on my own and I go, go to market with. So, so let me ask you this. When you were still focusing on services, were there any lessons on like adding value to try to keep a customer in the game as opposed to just being undercut purely on price? Uh, yeah. I mean, in one case, um, we, you know, obviously with large companies and, and after, you know, especially during, you know, the, the last recession with deep cuts, people were looking for outsourcing and we had partners out in India and uh, Costa Rica, but they wanted, one of our prospects wanted China hmm. and uh, we didn't have anything in China, but since I, I lived there, um, of course we had something in China. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I was able to recruit somebody locally that was an expat uh, he been in, in the U.S. for 10 years working as a VP of engineering for uh, Nuance, which is, does voice uh, technologies. And he was just laid off. And so I hired him to come on board and set up operations in China. Um, you know, we, we created a nice little deck of our office space that didn't exist yet. And then, uh, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of our uh, – and that's what, you know, that's what you do as an entrepreneur, right? Like I think uh, Reed Hoffman says it best where – you know, entrepreneur, you know, jumps off a cliff and, and builds an airplane on the way down. I love that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, and, and that, um, you know, that was actually a very successful operation, uh, for us in, in kind of the e-commerce space, which, uh, ATG was a, was a customer and, and they were purchased by, uh, I work almost years ago. Yeah. And, and, and you're exactly right. I really want to highlight that. So you had a customer who was looking for business in China and whereas a lot of people would say, Oh, sorry. We, we don't have anything in China before you're like, Hey, let me actually explore this. Like maybe see if I can't make this work. And now that became a very successful part of your business. And just like you said, you decided to jump off that cliff without the parachute and you're like, I'm either going to hit the ground or I'm going to finish this airplane by the time I get there. So that's never get the shot. if you say no, you're not going to get the shot anyway. So that's right. That's right. Wayne Gretzky, right? Trey, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you never get the puck, though, so um, it's always good to have the opportunity. Yeah. Well, hey, that's why that's why I like Trey, man. Sometimes you can just be the goon out there throwing punches and uh, still get paid yeah, to sometimes, play the game. Just need the enforcer to scare him a little bit, but yeah, as long as you get the contract. Yeah. <laughs> I love awesome. it. Awesome. Okay, so 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 moving from there, you said you went from services to products. So talk about that transition where you where you made a, a pivot. Did you start a new company? Did was that a complete pivot within the same company? How did that look? Yeah. So uh, I was involved in a lot of. I did all the technical interviews for everyone that we hired, and that became a, an issue when um, we were we were doing uh, uh, you know like hiring remotely and 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 from India especially or other countries and and uh, so the idea was basically hey uh, I want video so I want asynchronous video where I can ask questions and figure out uh, and just watch it watch them answer the questions that I want to ask. And so that was early, uh, so 2008 timeframe, and, and we built it internally first, and, and um, 
and basically, uh, you know, there was a lot of heavy lifting and, and because yeah, there was Skype and, and, uh, WebEx was out there, but there was a lot of challenges around just recording video and, and so, um, but it worked extremely well. So I was able to stop scheduling, uh, interviews where I had to kind of pay attention to time zones or, uh, you know, nights and weekends or waking up early and just to interview people. So I was able to watch those and, and hire. And that's the idea that I came up with where I wanted to take that to market. Um, and my partner didn't, you know, he was, he just loved what he's still doing what we were doing. Uh, yeah. and he just, you know, he, for me, I think maybe coming from an athlete or background where always working on weaknesses and trying to progress, uh, and take the ball forward. I just wasn't, I wasn't satisfied with, with what we're just, what we we're doing. So, um, yeah, it caused a lot of tension for about a year because, you know, you have partners, one guy's trying to do something totally different. Um, and so, but, but yeah. And, and, and so I went out, I went out on my own. I, I would work basically building the product. I would spend the, the day, um, you know, from eight to six in the office. And then I rented another office space in the, in the CIC, which is, kind of the first version of, um, of, uh, of WeWork that, uh, existed in, in, yeah. in Cambridge. And, uh, and now it's, you know, it's spread to St. Louis has it in the Cortex area. Actually, I go there at night and, uh, and I would, uh, build the, the product and, uh, marketing material and sales and so forth. So, you know, it was, uh, until finally I was ready to, to kind of go on my own. Awesome. Awesome. And then uh, now walk us through that. So, so, you know, moving off on your own from that. So this is what business number three now at this point. So this is uh, number two, but, uh, but yeah, this was a, this was uh, probably the, an unintelligent uh, move in terms of trying to, to get financing in 2009, uh, especially in the, in the recruiting HR tech space there, there wasn't anything, you know, their uh, LinkedIn still was what is LinkedIn. They really hadn't monetized yet. Uh, they had a little bit of ad revenue, but they were still underwater. Monster was Dice with the only other like HR text tools in the space where we were covering candidates. And then, um, you know, so we weren't able to, to raise any money and or I wasn't able to raise any money through that process. And people just thought as a, you know, you this this is going to be a kind of a same thing as your other business, the services business. Yeah. Not, it's not fundable. I don't see a hundred million dollar revenue stream. So, um, so I had to get another job, uh, in Moonlight. And so I, I took over as a turnaround COO for another technology consulting company here locally. And he sold his first company to monster. So there was a lot of synergy, uh, internally. So, um, I was basically responsible for kind of a path around strategy and what to go after their heavy Microsoft shop and doing a lot of SharePoint. And it, there wasn't a lot of people buying SharePoint in Boston at the time. Yeah. And, and uh, so I was, I was kind of a good trade off. But you stayed committed to the goal. So again, you had to get another job to make ends meet, but you continued to work on the business. Yeah. And it was open. So it was cool because he, he knew that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So and, yeah. So that's really interesting. So I think there's probably a lot of people who listen to this who could learn from that where, you know, your focus was, okay, I'm still building my baby. Uh, I, I don't have funding to necessarily put all my eggs in that basket. So I have to find another job. So you're, you're, you're grinding, essentially working two jobs, but maybe speak on that where you're trying to pitch investors and you keep getting told no, or you can't get people to see the vision. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people that can relate to that where they think their idea is great. It's discouraging to not get other people to see your vision and to buy in. 
but you stayed committed to it and now it's as successful as it is today. Yeah, I think, uh, I think what I was, was obvious to me during when pitching was basically, uh, there, they were telling me to optimize the business for investment and not optimize the business for the business. And I felt it was bad advice. I think you also need to look at, uh, you know, the investors themselves. And I think, um, you know, I, I saw a, uh, a great tweet, uh, this week, um, by VC and, 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 and broke it down. And I think it really sums up like venture capitalists and, and you know, like a, a, a bad VC, um, basically, uh, you know, hangs out with other, other VCs, uh, a good VC, um, you know, hangs out with other entrepreneurs and a, and a, and a great VC is a former entrepreneur. And so, um, and that was one thing I couldn't relate to these, you know, most of these guys, you know, Boston is you have an MBA, but I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah. Um, but it's like, yeah, I remember my first paper out. Uh, you don't, you don't know what it feels like to put it on the line. And if it's not, cut and dry i feel like they you know like a business book uh you know sometimes they just don't see beyond it. And, and you have to understand that the space too it, it's like boston in general uh is very conservative in terms of venture capital even though venture capital started here uh but it did start in harvard business school so a lot different than uh than san francisco um you know so i guess uh yeah, I kind of, I kind of saw through it, and I decided, hey, I'm not gonna ha- I'm not gonna wait for somebody to bless me and say, okay, you're anointed now, you have money, and you yeah. know. Um, so just started building uh, without you know, after five meetings with top two yeah. investors, started going moving forward. So one of my favorite stories about that, and and if I understand correctly, Airbnb is actually one of your customers now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so those guys, when they tell their story, they basically pitched Airbnb so many times and everyone laughed at them and said, this is a horrible idea. And during the McCain Obama election, they were, uh, marketing, uh, Obama O's and, you know, captain crunch version of McCain. And they're actually to make ends meet. They, these guys grinded. And when no one would give them a dime for what is now a incredibly successful business and business model, they were out buying boxes of cereal and like running grocery stores out of Cheerios to rebrand these boxes to sell them for, you know, 50 bucks as a, as an election gimmick. And again, anyone who could buy into Airbnb on day one, wouldn't even think twice about it today, but how many people, and even some really smart people who have, you know, invested in big companies, turned them down and they continue to grind. They continue to stay committed to their vision and they made ends meet any way they could. So I think that's a great lesson because, you know, where I work as an entrepreneur, there's other people in our space. It's almost like a think tank co-working space. So there's 40 small businesses there or some satellite operations for big companies. And I'm constantly talking to these guys and, you know, they're, they're constantly pitching new business ideas or new opportunities and trying to revise those pitches. But, you know, one guy I talked to was discouraged because it seems like nobody would say yes to his business. Nobody could see his vision. And it's just, you know, we're almost like a support group for each other to say, Hey man, just, if you're committed to it, stay on it, like take the advice, maybe learn something from it. But if you believe in the vision, like those probably just aren't the right partners for you. Just keep forging forward. And, and maybe that doesn't even mean you're waiting, like you said, to be anointed by somebody to just bless you with a check. Maybe you're either waiting for the right partner or maybe it's a blessing in disguise where now you still own a vast majority of your company and you're able to grind it out. And now when it's successful, you're not giving up 80% of your you know, profits and equity. 
Kyle, it, no, I, it's uh, really funny you say that. I mean, so we've uh, at our company, Redefine HR, we have had to reposition ourselves, what, five or six times as we've gone through. And we actually uh, have been talking about getting into the partnership space and working with vendors to help support some of our Oracle ecosystem. And, uh, you know, when Paul called, I was like, you know, this is our opportunity to really get our feet wet in the AI space. And we really see this as kind of a future forward strategy. So exactly to your point, sometimes you just got to wait for that break for the right guy to call you at the, you know, so it's, it's really funny how that happens. But sometimes if you say persistent with your product and you understand that you have a good skill set, you have something to offer, you just need that one little break. I mean, sometimes you just got to keep grinding. You'll, you'll get it that one day. Exactly right. And I mean, I feel like some of the most successful entrepreneurs were the guys who fell on their face 99 times, but they still were committed enough to get up that 100th time. And now everyone's like, oh my God, you're so successful. How did you do it? How did you do it? Most people think they just, you know, took their first swing and hit it out of the park and they don't realize like, man, like Steve Harvey, I listened to a podcast with him on it today. He was homeless for years and everyone told him he wasn't funny. And he had one teacher when he was a kid, he said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he wrote, I want to be on TV. And she called his parents and she's like, Steve's being a smart aleck. What do you mean you're going to be on TV? You got to stutter like you're a young black kid. No one's going to give you that attention. He sent that teacher every year for Christmas a TV for like 30 years to say, <laughs> and she wrote him back and she's like, Steve, quit sending me these TVs. I have too many TVs. He's like, He's like, Mrs. Whatever, like, I just wanted to show you that like, I was committed to this. I grinded at this. People told me I wasn't funny. People wouldn't hire me. People told me I was never going to do it. I'm on TV five days a week. <laughs> he calls himself the Black Nike Swoosh because he is <laughs> such an iconic brand now because he stayed committed to it. He grinded. I mean, that was a guy who went from living in his car to being one of the more successful TV personalities today. So I absolutely love that. We're hitting our 30 minute mark. So Paul, um, since you're in the AI space, maybe leave a, a comment to maybe somebody who's not as tech savvy, but you know, obviously we're seeing Alexa in a lot of homes today. Like where do you see AI evolving to becoming a more household type product where it's not maybe just a specific business sense, but something that, um, a lot of people can use relate to where do you see that space evolving? Wow. Uh, so that's a big question. Uh, so it's, uh, especially around here, I mean, uh, spend a good amount of time over at MIT with, uh, you know, conferences and so forth. And, and, you know, AI is, is basically automating a lot of, you know, tasks. Right. Um, and there, there's questions around whether, you know, is it, is it, is it making, you know, life easier or is it, is it going to get rid of all jobs? Uh, but I think I think it just it's it's, it's helping us to be more productive, um, yep. and so where where we want to get in and and you know I don't believe in all facets of AI, and I think you know with any good uh, technology advances, there's negative sides to it. But um, you know we just saw a space where there was a lot of uh, redundancy and decided to kind of tackle that piece. Um, you know, so I think it's, there's a lot there. I mean, it's, it's AI is like the internet, you know, so mm -hmm. it's very broad. Uh, so because the applications could be like, you're talking about voice applications, could be your refrigerator ordering milk for you because it knows that you're out. Yeah. I'm, um, you know, a, a chat bot, uh, although there's, you know, I don't know what's real AI behind chat bots, if it's, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, self-driving cars, I mean, so self-driving trucks, which, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, jobs, uh, that's the number one job for U.S. males is truck driving. 
Wow. And so if you're automating, if you're doing self, you know, self-driving trucks, you know, tractor trailers, then that's going to have a major impact uh, on society. And I don't think we have that figured out. Uh, yeah. So, but I, I, you know, from, you know, my perspective is I think everybody should kind of, you know, look forward. I mean, if, if, uh, if it, if, if it takes your job, um, I, I would say just kind of, I'm looking at, you know, the future, not, um, you know, saying boo, you know, somehow my, my job was, was, was taken over by, uh, an application or something. Um, I don't come from that mindset. I decided to jump in when yeah. I saw automation happening. I decided to go in and build versus, uh, be a victim of kind of AI and automation. I, I love that. So you evolved, you basically said, okay. It, it, and you know, I spend time with Trey and to me, Trey is a tech guru. So like he spent a couple of days with me in my office and he realized how redundant a lot of things I was doing. And he just introduced me to software. Software mm-hmm. is I think like step one, right? To me, AI is now it's software that is seeing your uh, actions and coming up with solutions on its own. It's now thinking to help add more value to the user where it's not just software where you're plugging in stuff in Excel. It's almost like Excel helping you create the goal for you where it's, it's thinking for you, right? It's, it's making this easier. So to most people will say, Hey, this is taking my job. And I think the right mindset is, okay, so this is the way business is evolving. I need to evolve with it. I need to create a skill set or something that will help me have a competitive advantage over a piece of software or over a self-driving vehicle. Or, you know, again, I think Uber is a great example of that because we've all had Uber drivers. How about the Uber driver who has 32 chargers in his car, who has a bottle of water and some M&M peanuts for you? Like that guy is taking it two steps further where I don't care if there's going to be an automated car pick me up. I want this guy who's like, he's got playlists going. He is adding exponential value beyond an automated ride. Like finding something that gives you that edge versus versus the, you know, inhuman experience. So I, I think that's where business is evolving. That's where everything's evolving to. It's all about making our lives easier, automating this and that. But, you know, how can we evolve as well as a workforce to continue to provide food for our families and, and add value to our companies and to our customers and to ourselves? Yeah, we, we always have a good saying at our firm, there's also human intelligence that has to go with artificial intelligence, right? You still have to add, you still have to have people that understand design your standard operating procedures, right, that go with it. So never be fearful, but just be ready to uh, to move and be agile within positions because uh, some things can be automated, but you still have to have the HI component of any business um, to, to go along with automating uh, any process. So, I love it. Well, Paul, obviously, we really appreciate having you as a guest. We've loved uh, hearing more about your story. Uh, can you finish with anything you want to plug, websites, any projects you're working on? Um, what can we talk about there? Yeah, Joe, check us out at, uh, at Filtered, uh, you know, www.filtered.ai. Um, you know, it's free for small businesses. Uh, so uh, we like to give back. Uh, and so if you're under four, under four years old and under a million in revenue, um, you know, we're, we're a free product to use so that we can help you, you know, to hire 10 old now. Awesome. So that, that's exactly the target market of this podcast is people who are starting their own businesses, who are looking to start their own businesses or who have started and, uh, are looking to, you know, smooth out that, that, that path ahead of them. So that sounds like a, a great win-win product. Uh, again, Paul, we really appreciate your time. Trey from the beautiful, uh, mountains of Vale and, uh, Nick, uh, I think we covered all of our coasts here guys. So, I uh, really appreciate it. I hope everyone has a, a great day for the rest of the yeah, day. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Lucrative Lessons. We hope you learned something today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes. If we earned your five-star review, please leave one. Helps for visibility. Also, you can check out more at LLPcast.com. All proceeds go to our 501c3 nonprofit, the Make-A-Day Foundation, where you can find more at makeaday.fun. We'll catch you next time.